Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Randa Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Sonia Peake to tell us all about her fascinating book from MIT Press titled Mnemonic Ecologies, Memory and Nature Conservation Along the Former Iron Curtain, which looks at Germany's largest conservation project, the Green Belt. This book does so in a really intriguing interdisciplinary way that puts a lot of things together that usually aren't, um, and that raises a bunch of fascinating questions about what does it mean to restore land? What does it mean to conserve land, especially land that has so much trauma, so much memory, um, so much built into it? Um, So Sonia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to walk us through this fascinating book. Thank you so much for having me. Before we do get into the book, though, would you mind introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this? Yes, I'm a uh, professor in environmental studies at Bates College in Maine, and my training is in human geography. So I'm interested in space and interested in the meanings of places to different people. I'm interested in the ecological interrelationships that make places look the way they do and act the way they do. Um, And I'm also a German citizen. I was born in in Bonn in West Germany, the capital of West Germany in the 1970s. And I um, have ties, still existing ties to Germany. I had heard about this Greenbelt project years ago uh, in the context of Germany's reunification and only had initially spent um, just a little bit of time sort of, or had a sort of cursory interest in it. But it became a much more compelling story as this project developed. And what really attracted me to it was, well, the story itself is fascinating. As you said, it's a, it's a reversal. It's a story of hope. It's a story of healing. It's a, it's a um, story of uh, wounded land and its redemption, a, a reconciliation of people's um, dealing with their traumas, with their losses. And also, yeah, it's a story of ecological change and resurgence. And uh, it, it makes for a, it's, it's a layered, complicated story in the same way that the land that we're looking at is complicated and layered. So uh, I visited, I think my first field visit was in 2014, and once I was on the ground, I found that what I thought would mostly be a story about essentially a land conflict was ultimately a much, much deeper struggle around how and what we remember and who remembers, and the realization that landscapes are deeply bound up in human attempts to make sense of the world, their past, presence, and futures, and the fact that landscapes themselves have their own dynamics that interlace with the human inhabitants. So that's that's sort of where I began and sort of where, where I ended up. And I ended up with a book that was ultimately something about, um, that says something about those things and says something about healing and, and reconciliation and redemption and hope. Hmm. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, I think it raises a number of themes that I'm going to be asking you to tell us as we get into more detail, um, but staying at the kind of foundational level for a moment, can you take us through the two main aims of the book? Yeah, the book. So the book is Mnemonic Ecologies. And in the title, you can already hear what it's about. So mnemonic means of or relating to memory. And my attempt here is to delineate a new field of study 
um, that brings uh, ecological considerations and ecological theory and ecological insights and research into conversation with uh, some of the main tenets of memory studies. And I'm trying, we'll talk a little bit more about it later on, I'm sure, but I'm trying to uh, make an argument here, a larger argument about uh, what we could gain from thinking about conservation and ecological restoration through the lens of memory. Uh, and so on the one hand, I'm trying to delineate essentially a whole new field of study that's framed by these considerations. And on the other, I'm also trying to offer readers an in-depth case study to illustrate what I mean by this. And the, the case study is, of course, the German Greenbelt and from that, I derive these broader considerations for conservation work and restoration work on what I consider to be essentially wounded land. That's a such a great encapsulation um, of really the book and everything I could possibly ask you about it. So thank you for starting us off that way. Um, mnemonic ecologies is obviously such a fascinating term. Is there anything further you'd like to tell us about that term before we move into discussing the green belt? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I had discussions with the press about the title of the book, and um, the press had asked me, do you really want to keep that word mnemonic? Because the concern was that, I, I mean, I've addressed the book, I've written the book on purpose in non-technical terms, so it reaches a wide readership. But there was a concern of, you know, is it possible that people may not know what mnemonic means, or it's not that necessary, uh, that accessible term. And so I made sure that the word memory appears at least in the subtitle, memory and nature conservation along the former Iron Curtain. But the reason I held on to mnemonic ecologies, mnemonic specifically, is that it is the widest possible framing that the book does. It's beyond simply thinking about it as memorial ecologies, because it's not about simply memorialization, it's about memory at large. And as I was doing research for the book, uh, I I came upon the interesting fact that mnemonic is related, is it comes out of the Greek, uh, and it also means uh, it's related to the word care, it's related to the word mourn. Those are interesting connections. But in Greek mythology, nemesine was the dog. So nemesine was the is one of uh, one of the um, religious figures, and is the goddess of memory. And she happens to be the daughter of Gaia, Earth. And so when I, I mean, I almost teared up when I realized that, that, that even so far back, we have these really poignant connections between remembrance, memory, memorialization, and Earth. And so I, I held on to that title because I, that was really, really important to me. Um, I think of mnemonic ecologies in multiple ways. I think about ecological arrangements, assemblages, ecologies, having memorial qualities for human beings, mnemonic, uh, memory-related qualities for human beings. They anchor and create memories and our identities. But I also flip it around. I also think that ecologies themselves have a memory in a sense. They can hold on, landscapes can hold on to scars from past disturbance, or they have the abilities to spring back from past destruction, or they change over time given human and non-human influences. So um, in that sense, mnemonic ecologies does, I think, the job of framing the larger concerns that I have. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, I admit it's not always a fascinating story to learn about what's behind a title of a book, but that one definitely, <laughs> that one definitely is. Um, 
All right. So you told us that the main aims of the book are to open up a new area of study and present a case study. So let's get into that case study. Can you tell us about the green belt? What is it and how was it developed? So the green belt it has not been known as the green belt forever. Uh, the green belt exists today in what was the former border zone between uh, capitalist West Germany and socialist East Germany. And so the history of the green belt, green belt goes back to World War II and the partition after after the World War. And the west of Germany was occupied by a number of allies, uh, France, uh, the UK, um, and the United States. And the eastern portion was occupied by the Soviet Union. And as uh, Germany emerged from the war, um, the, the country ended up being split in half between sort of the capitalist west and the three allies, the occupying forces, and then the socialist east. And over time, uh, by already by 1949, 1950, with Soviet help, the new East German state, the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, uh, built a borderline, a, a militarized fortified border um, to separate these countries and um, in a way to, to um, create a bulwark um, between the two economic systems. Uh, but increasingly, it also became clear that the border was built to keep East Germans from uh, migrating or fleeing to West Germany. And uh, over the next decades, that, that border zone became more and more militarized. And clear cuts were initiated to create multiple strips of, of space. Uh, these, those, some of those strips were mined. Uh, there were electric fences put in, there were spring guns, there were patrol roads, there were, I mean, all sorts of things that we might imagine that we are, might be quite familiar with from other places today. Um, but they cut right through central Germany, and that resulted in the displacement of thousands of East Germans. It was only possible with expropriating land from people who had farmed that land or lived on that land for generations. Villages were raised, completely torn to the ground. They disappeared. And as East Germans were forced away from this border zone and West Germans on the other side voluntarily sort of moved away from this militarizing space, there occurred a essentially a demographic vacuum. And in the context of urban development and industrial agriculture elsewhere, that newly emptied border zone became, in a strange sort of irony of history, it became a refuge for uh, over a thousand now endangered or increasingly endangered um, animal and plant species. And that strange sort of ecological accident of history had become apparent to conservationists, even at least a decade or two before the wall fell. There were ecosystems, for instance, wetlands that that returned, right? So in order to uh, render a wetland arable, for instance, it needs to be actively drained all the time. You need to have irrigation ditches and you need to monitor that. Once the border goes in, that constant management is impossible and the wetland will return over time. So we, for instance, saw that in multiple cases. In any case... By the 1980s, this phenomenon had become clear, and East and West German conservationists were keen on this space, thinking that maybe in some distant future, if the border ever disappeared, 
wouldn't it be great if we had a conservation space right here along this border? The border falls very surprisingly in 1989. And so in after reunification or, well, after the fall of the wall and uh, then uh, somewhat later after former reunification, there was a lot of confusion around who controlled whose, whose lands were these borderlands. Was this state property still? Does, should this go back to the communities from which this land was expropriated and so on? But um, the initial, so, so in that confusion, the initial conservation impetus was to try and get control of that land as fast as possible to clarify uh, the property rights on that land, and ideally to make sure that most of that land, if not all of that border land, uh, became property of either a state environmental agency or environmental NGOs. And so, again, the, in this sort of sense of confusion and urgency, the initial impetus was simply to protect the land and the non-human species on that land. And that ran for a while, and it bumped into problems as people were slowly resisting this, 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 this ecologizing force and pointing out that, well, how is it possible that you're celebrating this ecological revival when my family members were shot to death in this area or when my entire community was destroyed and the process of villages being raised? Like, how is it that you can just celebrate the return of, you know, the black stork or, um, whatever, you know, the, the fish otter and whatnot, when there are all these other things that are this, this land means to us. And so these historical or mnemonic or memorial considerations came second. And so what I'm detailing in the book also is this, this transformation of the, um, of, of the green belt from, uh, a death, from a death strip to a lifeline, to sort of a memorial landscape. Um, and so the Greenbelt today is a mostly protected, uh, so the conservation project has been, I think, in many ways quite successful. The environmental NGO that is spearheading it, the um, BUND, the Bund in German short, uh, the acronym, um, has managed to put most of that land under some form of protection. Uh, it's, there are still some gaps in that long border zone. But um, yeah, it is turning into a strange sort of social ecological hybrid that at once tries to conserve the space for Germany's endangered species while at the same time trying to meet the needs of both local people and the national public for remembrance and memorialization of the the partition, essentially, the, the 40 years of partition in Germany. Which brings us back to what you were saying earlier about kind of all the different pieces coming together and the complications this land poses. Um, one thing I'd love to ask you, I, I usually try and move forward in time with my questions, but I'm going to ask us to go backwards a little bit, because one thing I really appreciated in the book is um, I think quite often we fall into the false trope that kind of explaining Germany today means going back to reunification or means going back to World War II. And we sort of stop there, right? That might be as far back as we go in sort of explaining how things have come to be. But you show in the book that there are some threads we can see from the 18th century, from the 19th century, from the early 20th century, from Germany before all of this, before the strip, before it was divided in this way, that actually 
is useful for helping us understand kind of one of the strands that makes the green belt today so complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, happy to do so. So I should maybe, especially for um, American listeners, the it's it's perhaps uh, useful to point out that the main distinction between conservation in Germany and conservation in the United States. So the conservation movement in the United States, as we think of it, perhaps when we connect it with John Muir or others, so the, Teddy Roosevelt and the rise of the national parks. In the United States, the conservation movement um, historically has been strongly connected with the westward expansion, settler colonialism, and of course the attendant sort of genocide of native peoples and the national park as a sort of emerging national symbol. Um, and the frontier or the untouched nature, I mean, it was forcibly created, untouched nature, but um, the celebration of a wilderness, quote unquote, um, in the United States is sort of the hallmark of the conservation movement. And it's it's debated vociferously today as it should be, um, but that historically has been kind of the template. In Germany, that's not at all the case. Germany's landscapes have been pretty densely inhabited for for, for millennia. And so for German conservationists, the conservation movement in Germany has been pretty much from the start, not been seeking wilderness because there was evidently to even observers back in the 1800s, there was no wilderness in that sort of American sense. Uh, But uh, the the German conservationists were very much interested in preserving a cultural landscape. And they had an idea of sort of the cultural landscape before industrialization hit with full force. So we can think of, you know, the small family farms, we can think of the small plots um, that are interrupted by patches of forest with hedgerows, the sort of the rural idyll, as it were, um, and, you know, people engaging in small subsistence communities with, without the sort of later upheaval of emigration and industrialization and urbanization, but a sort of agrarian, this bucolic agrarian landscape to, to the extent it ever even existed. So that was something that people, the, the romantic sensibility of that. And from the mid 19th century in Germany, there were three movements. There was a movement to protect the homeland. So in the context of a accelerating uh, industrial transformation of Germany, there was a sort of backlash, a conservative reaction to that to try and protect Heimat. So that's an important word in Germany. Heimat, H-E-I-M-A-T, means roughly homeland, but there's no direct English equivalent. But uh, the protection of Heimat or the homeland was was one of the concerns to protect that sort of bucolic community-oriented Germany uh, ahead of the sort of massive trans- this transition and massive dislocation that the industrial uh, the industrial revolution represented. There was also uh, almost chronologically a little yes, overlapping, but somewhat later, a movement to protect. Uh, national and natural monuments. So, uh, for instance, the the later Prussian state had an office that would, um, uh, and the effort was there to to find, um, for instance, natural features, not unlike um, in the United States, we have national monuments uh, or natural features that get protected. So there was a history in Germany of protecting beautiful places, uh, beautiful rock formations or things like that um, to uh, to protect them as 
national monuments and natural monuments. So even by the time we entered the 20th century, there were thousands of these small preserved spaces, natural spaces uh, for people's recreation, for sort of romantic inclinations and later photography and so on. And in the uh, foment of these movements also emerged the sort of early version of conservation. And conservation, again, was trained on uh, preserving the cultural landscape, but a biodiverse cultural landscape and trying to pull, for instance, a variety of natural monuments together to create a space for animals and plants. Um, So all to say that there is a longer tradition here of trying to protect some mm, romantic um, vision, version of the landscape. Um, And all three of them are tied up in complicated ways with questions of the German nation and German identity. And the argument I'm making in the book is that the green belt is heir to those, those streams of thought the green belt itself also speaks to questions of national identity and uh, national concerns, right? In this case, it is, again, a, 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 a slightly different variant of homeland protection, but it's now seen su- through the prism of a post-socialist, post-violent, and post-reunification Germany, where the green belt is seen to be essentially the suture of the wound, right? It's essentially the thing that nature is the elevated, the larger supranational concern that can pull the divided Germanys back together. And so, again, related to questions around nature protection or questions around um, the, the memorialization and the monuments and the questions around homeland and homeland protection. So all of that, these connections I think, continue to survive in the Greenbelt effort. And so I, I read that in these sort of larger larger ways. Thank you for taking us through that. I think it makes it kind of make more sense as we're now going to turn on to discussing the memorialization aspect of it. Without that sort of context, I think I might have been sort of confused. Wait, why isn't, you know, why is there this tension around memorialization? oh, understanding kind of where this conservation bent is coming from makes that tension um, more understandable, I think. So an important component of all of this. But as I said, let's move on to the memorializations layer, I suppose. Um, You discuss in the book a number of different formal, publicly recognized kind of official memorializations throughout the Greenbelt. Um, what sort of similarities, you know, what makes something a formal, publicly recognized memorialization? What what do those tend to look like? Yeah, the, the examples that I talk about in the book, um, and they are certainly not exclusive. So there are a lot of different formal memorializations across the green belt, and I imagine that they will continue to increase as time goes on. Um, I just offer a glimpse at... Um, two of them. I I, um, look at uh, two aspects or two examples of landscape art. So those are um, using natural elements or working with the landscape to create a large scale uh, artistic element and uh, to work with the ways that landscapes change or phenology. So thinking about seasonal changes to actually make a larger 
point or create um, formations of meaning in the landscape. And so those are usually widely visible. They tend to be published in tourist brochures. They attract visitors. They are often curated to an extent. So there will be some signage. There will be an explanation of what is to be seen. Um, However, what I think is interesting about the landscape art installations is that that only goes so far. So one of the, I think, evocative and powerful aspects of the landscape art that I talk about here is that it gives the viewer or the person experiencing the art, this is actually a somatic experience, right? You can walk into the installation, you can feel the tree trunks, you can look at the ways in which the trees have been organized to create some sort of... um, formation like you know much art is is geared at creating some sort of somatic response in the viewer and so with landscape art it's it can be quite powerful because you're actually inside the installation you can actually feel and and sort of see and smell like experience it sensually and so there's some form of curation of that of of managing the meanings or setting expectations among the visitors and the viewers and then it opens up and then it lets go. And so then the viewer or the the person experiencing this needs to sort of make up their own minds about what they're experiencing. So there's some landscape art that is a commentary essentially on the reunification and it uses elements of growth and decay to, uh, to show or illustrate certain things. But how one experiences uh, regrowth and how one individually experiences decay, those are idiosyncratic personal things. So I like, and so to the extent that one ascribes, you know, one can ascribe certain emotions to that. Do you feel joyful and hopeful when you see the small flowers that emerge in sort of already directed patches? Do you feel sad and troubled when you notice that um, chopped off tree trunks are slowly falling together and decaying? Like what goes on for you? So the landscape art, it, you can t- sense that it's quote unquote official or formal because it it has been installed potentially also with some statements that it has of, of, of sort of national or regional importance or whatnot. But even on the green belt in the, these two examples that I use, what I find so interesting is that um, the meaning, much of the meaning making is actually left to the individual. Uh, so there are other forms of public commemoration. Another one that I comment on is um, the ways in which the green belt or the ways in which um, the raised villages are remembered. So sometimes it's simply, I mean, it's the starkness of, of the absence. The absence is telling, right? So the absence is making some kind of memory or emotional response present. Um, and so there will be stone markers, for instance, saying, here, here stood the village of so-and-so. Um, or you can find, as you trudge through a cornfield or a wheat field, there's headstones from an old cemetery where a village used to be and in the sort of turmoil of land reappropriation and so on that got sort of swallowed up by a farmer's field. So there are some forms like that that may be more or less official. Um, there are, there's a particular village that I comment on in the book, the village of Yazo which has some minor signage to it. But beyond that, a lot of it is, again, uh, left up to the visitor to experience and sort of come into close contact with past lives and sort of have their own emotional reaction to it. So um, there will be other formal memorializations. There's certainly, uh, there's a lot of um, 
guideposts. There's uh, absolutely quite a few very good um, borderland museums. Um, they're not um, they're not oriented towards the ecological, but they are certainly instructive and educational and deeply moving in terms of the borderlands history, the human history of that. Um, so, yeah, so so we have a range of more or less curated, more or less musealized, formal memorializations in and around the Greenbelt, absolutely. And I think that's absolutely necessary. So then what about the informal memorializations? How different or similar might those be to what you've just described for us? Yeah, they exist sometimes in... in uh, in, in relatively easy conjunction with the formal and sometimes in uncomfortable tension with formal. So formal memorialization there, for instance, in Germany, there has been an effort at creating a national nature monument that I talk about in some detail in the book. Uh, there's an ongoing effort to declare the Greenbelt a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so there are state-centered forms of commemoration that are ongoing where the German government or German NGOs are trying to link um, nature and nation in explicit ways. And I don't, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. I think, again, in sort of post-reunification Germany, that can actually be quite salutary if it's handled correctly. Um, Heimat, you know, homeland is a double-edged sword that needs to be carefully, carefully managed um, because there is a tendency and there is a history of that word becoming, having nationalist connotations. But so there are these, these formal ways, and then there are the more, I would call them vernacular forms of commemoration or, or uh, remembrance. I begin the book with a vignette of me being uh, standing in the green belt itself and being struck by this um, group of crosses that the local community put up, and they commemorate an event where I believe two border guards were East German border guards while the wall was still standing. Two East German border guards were shot by a third who was trying to actually, who had secretly plotted to escape to the West and sort of in the scuffle, uh, uh, you know, killed his comrades and and fled. And so um, there's something like deeply moving about, you know, people reclaiming this space for, you know, in, in, the face of their grief and um, imbuing the Greenbelt with this kind of meaning. And what also struck me is that if the Greenbelt ecological management wasn't happening and the former open spaces were just being left to forest succession and the, 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 the border, those empty strips were just left to close, it would not have been possible for the local community put, to put up those crosses. That site of death and struggle would have been lost in some ways, would have been inaccessible. So um, there is certainly, there are those sort of vernacular forms of remembering. And there has been, as I mentioned before, there has been in Germany among local people, people directly affected by the border, um, there's been quite a bit of resistance to what they see, you know, so the uh, organization of, of, you know, the, the victims 
families, associations of victims' families, there's been resistance to this sort of what they see as an unproblematic ecologizing of history. I use that sort of in quotation marks. There's been a fear of greenwashing, right, or erasing the history of the partition and erasing the history of a difficult reunification in terms of just celebrating, hey, you know, look at this wonderful biodiverse, you know, conservation area that we have. So, um, and then one of the wonderful things about actually walking the green belt is that I would come across, there are certainly, you know, there are the official border monuments, there are uh, the border museums, and then there are people who create their own sort of border museums, like in an attic, they have, you know, they collect from, they have themselves or collect from relatives, like old uniforms or equipment or old cars and so on. And then they have their informal, you can visit them for free, these informal little tiny border museums in so-and-so's attic or so-and-so's basement or barn or so on. But then what I find so fascinating is that there, if you walk and you actually pay attention, there's, you look into people's backyards and you'll see this sort of smaller repurposing of the border. So i you know, in northern Germany, I was walking and I could glance into somebody's orchard and I could see that chunks of the border fence had been wrapped around trunks of small fruit trees to protect them from deer. And then somebody else had used the border fence to actually create a, a space to hold the compost pile. And so, you know, how, how interesting this sort of um, this taming of the border, a rendering innocent or a reinvention, or, and that to me says a lot about sort of healing and reconciliation in the context of, of post-violence. And um, so anyway, my thoughts on that. <laughs> Very helpful <laughs> thoughts. Um, yeah. And obviously for anyone who's um, deeply entranced by all of this, of course, the book has so much additional detail and examples. Um, so I definitely want to point listeners there. Um, but I'd like for us to kind of zoom out a little bit from the details of the green belt and all of the many things happening there to think about kind of what you said at the beginning of opening up a broader area of study of thinking about some ways in which um, it is about Germany, but it's not just about Germany. So in what ways do you think that the German case we've been discussing serves as, quote, a success story and a cautionary tale? Yeah, I say that in the introduction. Um, in very broad strokes, conservation and restoration um, proceed by trial and error. And that's really important to recognize. And I emphasize that trial and error. So in the field of conservation, there's a serious dis disincentive, the serious professional and economic disincentive to admit mistakes, to admit limitations, to admit that a project actually totally flopped and that we that there needs to be some learning and readjustment and recalibration. And that's what I think is so inspiring here. There's been a visible learning process. We started off with just do, do conservation, the science-based conservation. We're just going to protect land and we're going to, this is really important. And that was appropriate possibly in the urgency of the moment. And then there was a sort of moment of reckoning with like, oh my gosh, all this resistance among local people to this project, what is going on? Why are people... So then there was a longer sort of listening process that needed to happen. It was like, what are the concerns of local people? Why are people upset? And a realization that, um, you know, local communities... This, this is, again, I'll repeat this phrase, this is wounded land. Local communities, the, the landscape, the border landscape in this case, is holding 
so much loss and so much grief and anger and frustration and despair at the same time as there's love and um, affection and place attachment, all of which are getting stirred up by conservation's attempt to sort of claim the space and and, uh, recreate it in its own interests. And so what I think is so important here is to recognize that intervention in a landscape, ecological intervention, has to be an empathetic, patient, sensitive learning process. So uh, conservation in general, right? So, but especially in landscapes that are layered with this sort of trauma, they need sensitivity and empathy. And historically, when we look across the last century and a half of conservation, we have often lacked that. There is a history of conservation displacing local people, creating people-free wilderness zones uh, in spaces that have really never really been unpeopled, right? So that to, to, to create, and whether it's in the United States or in sub-Saharan Africa or elsewhere, to create these like vast expanses of um, wilderness without people. Um, so uh, I think I think that's one of the things that I'm really trying to emphasize. The Greenbelt is a huge success in terms of, I think, in terms of land won back for biodiversity conservation in a country as densely settled as Germany, where one of the um, officials in the in the federal nature conservation agency was saying our scarcest resource is space, right? And so in that sense, the Greenbelt has been quite successful. Uh, and you know, and it's also successful, I would say, for the message of possibility and hope that it generates. But it's also shown us the the fragility and the complexity of conservation and restoration work and the need to be closely attuned to local communities, to emotions, to uh, ecological dynamics, which is sort of Again, one of the, as I sort of circling outward towards the end of the book, circling outward from the green belt, it, those are the larger uh, lessons, I think, that the green belt holds. I think this is a really exciting project, and yet it, it shows us, and in sort of the honesty in which the German conservationists have been wrestling with this, in a country that is used to wrestling with the past, um, that I, I think there are lessons here that are really, really important for global conservation. I think that that's quite a persuasive case. Um, I was, in fact, going to ask you about some of the implications of this study of the Green Belt for other places around the world, but maybe we've answered that. Is there anything else you'd like to I say? Can, yeah, I think, I mean, I think I can I can expand a little bit on that because it's a point that I very much care about. Um, it, the book I wrote is a book on healing both ecological and social wounds, right? I think there's real potential for conservation and restoration to offer this if done carefully. And as I said, with patience and empathy and compassion, right? I think that conservation and restoration can be linked with a larger project of restorative environmental justice, right? So to, to recognize, and I, and I draw on a number of cases, um, in the book, I look at uh, post landscapes of post-violence in Cambodia and Colombia, for instance. I also look at the Balkans and other Korean partition. But um, it's in the point gets made again and again that to recognize that how important it is to recognize that healing landscapes often requires healing the people that inhabit those landscapes, and in reverse, healing people 
uh, can in turn heal the landscapes. And so that sort of that, that dialectic, that sort of synergistic relationship, um, it, it, that work is already being done. This is not something I'm inventing. This work is being done in places that the West likes to identify as so, quote unquote, conservation hotspots, like, as I said, Cambodia or Colombia, right? But it should be a real consideration for many different places, including large settler colony, colonies like the United States, because at least seen from the perspective of my book, all land here is wounded land. So Germany has had to seriously reckon with its past. And every German school child is taught about the German role in the Holocaust, for instance, right? So processing the traumas of state socialism and the partition is still relatively new. There's often, we know from the psychological literature, there's often a generational gap before that sort of reckoning can happen. But even that is happening and it's helped along, as I show in the book, by this Greenbelt Conservation Project. But that large scale reckoning with a violent past, which the Germans call, the Germans of course have a word for that, that's called Aufarbeitung, this sort of reckoning, this critical interrogation of the past, that large-scale, national-scale reckoning is still missing largely in the United States, right? Even though that there are a number of very important and very interesting smaller-scale initiatives that are happening across the country. And I argue that national parks and other conservation areas are really excellent places to deepen that kind of work. Thank you for highlighting um, where those places are and also kind of the challenge of it and bringing in the other aspects we might be more familiar with about Germany's past in particular um, to kind of draw those together. I was interested in the book that you didn't just highlight um, kind of places where this might be relevant and ways that this sort of thinking about this at kind of a national level, at a higher picture level, macro level. You also talk about individual readers and ethical commitments that you're sort of posing for yourself, for individuals on that level as well. Can you talk through that more individual aspect? Yeah, so it's 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 directed at individuals. It's also directed, um, I think, squarely at conservationists, both at the individual, each of us as practitioners and thinkers in, in the realm of conservation and conservation organizations. But um, there are, yes, there are pragmatic considerations and there are these sort of ethical considerations or ethical commitments. And there are, um, there are five of them. And I begin by saying that, you know, the first one would be taking nature seriously, right? That, and, and these are not necessarily in order, these are not in order of importance, but uh, I have to start somewhere. So um, taking nature seriously, and by that I mean that we recognize that nature has agency, right? That it, we can't reduce, um, we can't reduce landscapes to simply the the things we influence or the things we inhabit, and and uh, that nature itself has a certain level of autonomy. It has agency. That it literally matters in in sort of the multiple ways that that word works. That we allow for wildness and that we allow for ecological emergence. That we allow for um, ecological surprises to happen, right? Things that are unplanned and unsteered and that may sometimes scramble our attempts that, you know, as we're, as conservationists or as we individuals, right? Anybody who's, who's planted a garden knows that the garden sometimes has a mind of its own, right? So that nature itself has agency and we, we need to, we need to recognize that. 
Uh, the second one is that we, you know, that, that, that I, I ask readers uh, in, and conservationists, you know, how, I, I say how important it is to take people seriously, that people in conservation spaces and um, their, their past, their present, their future lives count as do their hurt and pain, their longings and yearnings. And all of those things among local communities are important to conservation and to understanding the history of a place. Um, and so it leads me to the third, which is taking socio-ecologies seriously. So understanding and paying attention to the interlacing of people with the places they inhabit, right? People are often, but not necessarily always, destructive of their environments. And so then the question is raised, what can we learn from human environment interactions across time, right? To, so that we can see many landscapes, and I'm talking about really any landscapes, whether those are in heavily populated Western Europe, or they're somewhere in the Amazonian rainforests or there in sub-Saharan Africa uh, savannas and so that we see many landscapes as human environment co-creations. It doesn't mean that anything goes and we just accept the Anthropocene as is, but it's about maintaining an awareness of that sort of dynamic interaction and a respect, especially for many people to still hold a lot of wisdom about how to live generously and kindly on, on wounded land. Uh, the fourth ethical commitment uh, is about taking the local seriously. And we often talk about the local, in quotation marks, as a singular thing. And to understand, of course, that that's not the case. The local, whether it's my, it's my classroom, my college classroom, or it's a community somewhere in Cambodia, is always complicated and fractured and fissured by all sorts of things. But it offers, the local offers us also then a counterpoint to the tendency uh, toward abstraction that exists in a lot of environmental politics, right? So when we're talking about, you know, net zero emissions or cap and trade and whatnot, there's a, a yeah, there's a tendency to abstract from the local and that has to an extent its uses and purposes and it also has its limitations and risks. Um, taking the local seriously means we orient ourselves away from state-centered forms of conservational memorialization. We lift up local stories. We attend to local people's hurts and needs. And again, the emphasis on local forms of remembrance as well, right? And, and, and emphasizing the local returns to communities a sense of themselves and their dignity. Um, and the last uh, major ethical commitment is about taking emotion seriously, Doing ecological work means, should mean, remaining open to the emotional reality, realities of us all, right? The emotional realities of conservationists, as well as the people they might encounter, right? We need to grapple with our own feelings of loss, of grief, of anxiety, right? Uh, but also realize that the people that one might be working with at the local level are also more than just, quote unquote, stakeholders or, quote unquote, victims, they're fully fleshed out human beings with their own vulnerabilities, their dreams, their needs, their wants, and all of which they may or may not want to bring to the table, right? Once we do that, when we take these things seriously and when we deepen our ethical commitments, I think what becomes possible is um, also uh, the, a, a, a different way of seeing and of being with each other becomes possible, right? Where, uh, the a different way of um, 
care work is possible. And with that, broader coalitions that conservation needs to create, right? So conservationists are, are in some cases used to working with local communities, but what I'm talking about are larger networks of care and of, of, of care work, right? We're talking about historians and post-war documentation centers and truth and reconciliation commissions, as much as I'm talking about mental health professionals and artists and pastoral care workers and poets and peacemakers who may all very well have a role to play in conservation and ecological restoration. So I think the need for healing is great, um, especially as we're talking in these times. Um, the need for healing is great. and I think the potential for healing is great. What a wonderfully positive note to end on. Thank you so much for taking us through those. Um, but before I let you go, I'd love to ask, this book is obviously out and available for people to read, which means you're no longer working on it. I'm sure that's a relief. Um, is there anything you might be working on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to let us know about? Um, well, I'm, I'm continuing. I'm, I'm continuing my inquiries into questions around conservation and restoration for sure. In terms of a specific project, not right now. I'm working right now on spreading the message of the book. It's been an emotionally demanding project of me, and I want to accompany it out into the world. Um, I'm also so excited to be returning the teaching. I'm feeling reinvigorated by the opportunity that, the opportunity that the book provided to deeply understand a place um, and to imagine how conservation might change for the better. So again, I think, I think that message is important in this time of crisis and loss, it, it, to, to remain hopeful of the possibility of reconciliation and, and healing and peace, right? What a great message to be taking into the classroom. Um, and of course, to pass on through the book to remind the listeners what the title is, Mnemonic Ecologies, Memory and Nature Conservation Along the Former Iron Curtain, published by MIT Press. Sonia, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>